0: So how does a guy born into a working-class New York family wind up with hundreds of millions of dollars, the owner of an island in the Caribbean, and be the center of one of the most high-profile criminal trafficking operations in recent history? Well, you're about to find out. I'm Joshua Roberts, attorney at law, and you are watching Lawyer Up. In today's episode, we're going to be taking a look at the life of Jeffrey Epstein. We're going to start by looking at his business life and how he made his millions. Next, we're going to turn to his personal life, how he became a registered sex offender and one of the most hated men in all of America. We're going to talk about his relationship with Ghislaine Maxwell And the particulars of their alleged trafficking operation, including allegations of who else was involved and the locations where these occurred. We're going to talk about the criminal cases. We're going to talk about the civil cases. And then, of course, we're going to talk about the infamous last days of Jeffrey Epstein's life and look specifically at the evidence surrounding his death to help you guys decide just how his life ended. If you enjoy the episode, if you learned something, hit that like button for me. If you got something to say, you got a question, put it in the comment sections below. If you haven't subscribed, what are you waiting for? Hit that subscribe button. And as always, I love it when you guys share me on social media. Last but not least, recall that Lawyer Up is available on all major podcast formats. So Jeffrey Edward Epstein was born in 1953 in Brooklyn, New York, to a modest working class family. He graduated high school and attended some college, but left without obtaining a degree in 1974 when he was offered a teaching job at an exclusive private high school in Manhattan called the Dalton School. It was at the Dalton School where he became acquainted with the children of Alan Greenberg and then ultimately Alan himself. Now, Mr. Greenberg was the CEO of Bear Stearns, which was a huge global investment, securities trading, and brokerage firm in New York City. And it was Greenberg who hired Epstein on as an assistant to a floor trader at Bear Stearns. And this was Epstein's first really big break, because from there, he advanced quickly to become a junior partner who advised some of the bank's wealthiest clients. Well, that was until 1981 when an SEC misstep got him fired, but He had already made the millionaire contacts that he would need to move into the upper financial echelon of society. From there, Epstein opened his own consulting firm dealing primarily with multi-million dollar clients, a lot of defense contractors, including Saudi Arabia's Adnan Khashoggi, who was one of the billionaire arms brokers that was involved in the Iran-Contra affair, if you recall very, very rich clients. In the late 80s, Epstein teamed up with Steven Hoffenberg and formed Towers Financial Corporation, which was a mostly unsuccessful investment and corporate rating vessel that imploded in the early 90s and was ultimately called one of the biggest Ponzi schemes in American history. Now, Epstein had left Towers a couple of years before its collapse, and so he was able to avoid any investor fraud charges. After Towers, Epstein became the right-hand man for billionaire Leslie Wexner, who was the CEO of a little company you may have heard of called Victoria's Secret, among other companies that Les was involved in. And this was the second really big break for Epstein. Epstein managed Weckner's affairs until about 2000, and after that he got into hedge funds and all kinds of high-risk investments for his multi-millionaire clients. And that was until investigations into his exploits began to surface in 2005. So that was the 8 to 5 for Jeffrey Epstein. But what everybody wants to know about is the 5 p.m. to 8 a.m. and what he was doing after hours, who he was doing it with, and where it occurred. Because today, Jeffrey Epstein is not known for his financial exploits, but instead of his participation in and the direction of, of dozens of underage girls, from the early 90s through the mid 2000s so for that discussion we have to turn to his partner in crime Ghislaine Maxwell so Ghislaine Maxwell is alleged to have been Epstein's sidekick through the majority of the abuse of these underaged girls although she denies any wrongdoing whatsoever her backstory is that she grew up in an extremely wealthy family living in a 53-room mansion in England She was educated at Oxford and was the daughter of Robert Maxwell, who was a very rich and powerful media mogul in England in the 70s and the 80s. He also served as a member of Parliament. He was described as a gruff businessman who was always working and who often ignored his family, leaving Ghislaine starving for his attention. Now, Robert Maxwell disappeared off of his yacht, aptly named the Lady Ghislaine, in 1991, and what happened to him is still a mystery, but his disappearance occurred just prior to a scheduled meeting with his banks to whom he had defaulted on significant loans. The subsequent handling of his estate revealed that he had robbed his employee pension funds of some $600 million to stave off bankruptcy. When this came to light, he was, of course, vilified in the media He was described by the English as the criminal of the century and the Maxwell name became mud in England. So fleeing the fallout over the family name and with many of the family fortunes gone, Ghislaine Maxwell opted to live in New York City where she sold real estate and began running with Jeffrey Epstein. From there, and it's not entirely clear as to the beginning and end dates of their relationship, but they did date for several years. Their first public photograph together was at Trump's Mar-a-Lago Resort in 1992, and most pundits placed the end of the romantic relationship in 2003 after an Epstein interview wherein he referred to her as his best friend rather than his girlfriend. During their relationship, the two were very social. They attended parties and had celebrity acquaintances including Prince Andrew, Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, Katie Couric, Woody Allen, Harvey Weinstein, Richard Branson, Michael Jackson, Alec Baldwin, the Kennedys, and many more. Now, Ghislaine's official job was to manage the staffing and the financial affairs of Epstein's many households. Unofficially, she is alleged to have been in charge of the recruitment of underage girls for sexual exploitation by Epstein and his friends. It is alleged that Maxwell sought economically disadvantaged girls to offer them cushy jobs with Epstein. She would then shower them with gifts and money to entice them to continue participating in the this. One of the victims, Virginia Roberts Gouffre, who was originally recruited for the spring while she was working at Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort has said that Maxwell would normalize the abuse. She described her as a mother figure to the young ladies who trusted her. She stated that Ghislaine made the abuse feel like an odd family quirk. And Gouffre has also said that not only did Maxwell coordinate the sex ring, but she personally participated with Epstein in using her. Maxwell was also the enforcer if a girl would complain or try to leave the ring. Maria Farmer, another outspoken victim, has said that she was threatened by Maxwell when she spoke out about trying to exit the sex ring. So those were the two leaders of the ring. Now let's talk about the locations and other individuals alleged to have participated in these activities, starting with the locations of the abuse. Now, in regards to the locations, there were four main places. It happened other places, but there were four main locations. Number one was Epstein's 21,000-square-foot Manhattan mansion, which was purchased from Les Wexner and valued at over $80 million dollars. Number two was his Palm Beach, Florida mansion. Number three was a 7,500-acre ranch in New Mexico. And last but not least was an island called Little St. James, which is off the coast of St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands. And each of these locations were alleged to have been wired with hidden cameras. Some have actually been found by police in raids. Victim Maria Farmer testified that she personally viewed a room of video monitors of hidden surveillance cameras planted all over the Manhattan mansion. And the allegation is that they were recording illegal and drug activities of Epstein's acquaintances to be used in the future for blackmail, if needed. And the place with the most alleged cameras, that was Little St. James. In regard to that island, it is a 78-acre island between St. Thomas and St. John's, in the Virgin Islands. It was purchased by Epstein in 1998 for $8 million. And although Epstein called it Little St. Jeff, during his ownership, it acquired a local nickname, uh, several in fact, like the Island of Sin and Isle, due to the alleged debauchery that was taking place there. The island contained a mansion, guest cottages, staff housing, and a weird blue-striped box-like building with a golden dome that was supposed to be some sort of an entertainment venue. The island maintained a staff of 70, and it was the location of many of the crimes that have been alleged by Epstein accusers. Alleged visitors to the island include Les Wexner, Victoria's Secret Models, and Prince Andrew. Bill Clinton was rumored to be a frequent visitor between 2002 and 2005, although he denies ever visiting the island. And to bolster his position, Clinton relies on the fact that Secret Service records and Epstein's flight logs show no such trip for him to the island. But that's contrary to what Virginia Roberts-Gouffre has testified to, that she personally saw Bill Clinton on the island in 2002. Epstein traveled primarily to the island by his own private jet, a Boeing 727, which was nicknamed by locals as the Lolita Express because of its frequent arrival to the island with underaged girls on board. The name comes from a 1955 novel wherein the protagonist his 12-year-old stepdaughter, who he had nicknamed Lolita. The book was made into a movie in 1962 and again in 1997, if you are interested. Now, Epstein 727 didn't just fly to Little St. James. It flew all over the world, and flight records reflect names such as Donald Trump, Kevin Spacey, Chris Tucker, and Bill Clinton as passengers to over a dozen international locations in 2002 and 2003. In regard to Bill Clinton, records indicate that he flew frequently on Epstein's private jet and Epstein had visited Clinton in the White House on at least four different occasions. Now, in regard to Donald Trump, Epstein and Trump socialized together in the 90s and the mid-2000s as they both had residences in New York City and in Palm Beach, but they got crossways in a bidding war over the purchase of a mansion in Palm Springs in 2004 and reportedly never spoke again. When they were friends, the extent of their relationship is largely unknown, but of interest was that there were three separate lawsuits filed by the same unnamed source against Epstein and Donald Trump, alleging that the two men had assaulted her at Epstein's residence in Manhattan in 1994 when she was 13 years old. All three suits were dismissed or dropped by the plaintiff without any offer of settlement, so the merits of these accusations were never determined. Prince Andrew, he is the one who Gouffray alleges most often abused her, doing so in several different countries. And of course, Prince Andrew is known for his famously disastrous TV interview over this topic. Although Prince Andrew originally stated he did not know her and denied the allegations, there is photographic proof that he was at least with her in the presence of Epstein and Maxwell. And I would add that his hand placement in the photo suggests that they in fact did know each other and that it was more than just a casual acquaintance. So now let's turn to the criminal prosecution of Epstein for these activities. And we're going to take a look at his first criminal case. So in March of 2005, a woman reported to the Palm Beach police that her 14-year-old stepdaughter was taken to Epstein's Florida mansion by an older girl and paid $300 to strip and massage him. This started a 13 month investigation by the Palm Beach Police Department, assisted by the FBI. They interviewed over 20 witnesses, discovered five victims that were under the age of 18, with the youngest being 14. Eventually, the FBI compiled reports on 40 confirmed minors with allegations of abuse by Epstein and his cohorts. The Miami Herald ran a story that the total was actually twice as many girls. And the investigation also revealed that 12-year-old triplets were flown in from France for Epstein's birthday and then flown back the next day after being by him. The report showed that girls were flown in from Brazil, Russia, and Europe, in addition to girls that were procured in the United States. Despite an apparent massive amount of evidence, state prosecutors only presented two witnesses to a grand jury, and in July of 2006, Epstein was indicted on a single count of felony solicitation of prostitution in state court. Epstein hired Alan Dershowitz and Ken Starr to headline his defense team, and if those names ring a bell, those are the same two lawyers that initially headed up Trump's impeachment defense team after the Capitol riot. At that same time, the FBI started its own independent investigation nicknamed Operation Leap Year. It resulted in a 53-page indictment in June of 2007 in federal court. The case was prosecuted by U.S. Attorney Alexander Acosta, who would later become the Secretary of Labor in the Trump administration. So in June of 2007, both a federal and a state court case are set up to expose the many crimes of Epstein— Four named co-conspirators, as well as several unnamed co-conspirators. And it was thought that these cases were finally going to bring Epstein and his cohorts to justice. Well, they were wrong. Shockingly, Acosta agreed to a non-prosecution plea deal at the federal level that granted federal immunity to Epstein and all of his named and unnamed co-conspirators. Acosta sealed the indictment so it was not available to the public and even refused to give details of the non-prosecution agreement to victims of the abuse, which is contrary to federal law and the law of most states. As you might imagine, it created quite a stink because nobody knew what Epstein's punishment was, if anything. Now, a federal judge would later rule that the prosecutors had violated victims' rights in sealing the agreement, and so it was ordered release. So today, we have access to it. And what the agreement did was to dismiss the federal case against Epstein in exchange for Epstein's plea of guilty to two felony counts of soliciting prostitution at the state court level, which Epstein did. And in the state case, he was sentenced to 18 months on both counts. He had to register as a and pay restitution to some three dozen victims. But in exchange, he gained immunity to all prior federal crimes. This prosecution agreement was finalized on December 7th of 2007 So anything that happened prior to that date was basically over. The net effect of the agreement was essentially to shut down the FBI's investigation into whether there were other victims and other powerful people who were participating in these crimes because the co-conspirators were now immune from prosecution. And as we saw with a similar agreement in Bill Cosby's case, these agreements should shield anyone participating in these crimes with Epstein at any time prior to December 7th of 2007. So on June 30th of 2008, as I had mentioned, Epstein pled guilty to charges and was sentenced to 18 months of confinement on both cases. Now, most offenders are then sent to prison, but not Epstein. He stayed in the local Palm Beach County Jail and was allowed work release for up to 12 hours a day, six days a week, even though work release is not allowed for sex offenders. Epstein also created the foundation where he went to work for his work release. His office was monitored by deputies from the jail who Epstein paid, and these deputies actually worked as employees of the foundation. They welcomed guests, and they provided security. And Epstein was allowed to use his own driver and vehicle to take him to and from the jail and the foundation. When he was at the jail, his cell remained unlocked, and he had access to a television that was installed for him in the attorney room. Ultimately, he served 13 of the 18 months and was released to house arrest in July of 2009. While on house arrest, he was allowed to travel between his various houses in Palm Beach, Manhattan, New Mexico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Not exactly what I would call doing hard time. Now, this deal was, of course, lambasted in the media as a deal- of a lifetime, and the backlash would ultimately cost Attorney Acosta his job as the Secretary of Labor for the Trump administration after Epstein's rearrest in 2019. But facing steep criticism, Attorney Acosta later said that he had been instructed by his supervisors to offer a sweetheart deal in the case because Epstein had agreed to testify against several defendants who were indicted in a federal case in New York City involving the subprime mortgage lending debacle of 2007 and 2008, which in turn caused a global financial crisis and required the massive government bailout. So at some level, the United States Department of Justice had determined that Epstein's cooperation in the New York case was more important than his prosecution in the Florida case. As for Ghislaine Maxwell, well, she officially ended her public association with Epstein in 2008 after he pled guilty and went to jail, but she couldn't sever ties with him totally because it was about this time that the civil cases started rolling in against the two. Starting in 2008, there were numerous civil cases filed by women allegedly assaulted by Epstein, Maxwell, and their cohorts. Many of them were underage. And it was repeatedly alleged in the petitions that Epstein led a use ring that recruited, abused, and lent underage girls to prominent politicians, business executives, and foreign leaders. Victims in most of the cases used pseudonyms such as Jane Doe, but some did use their real names and probably the most outspoken victim was Virginia Roberts Gouffre, who I have mentioned earlier and who has become kind of the face of these Epstein victims. She alleges in a 2016 deposition that she was kept as an underage slave and trafficked by Epstein and Maxwell for several years in the early 2000s. She has stated that she was forced to provide erotic massages and have sex with Britain's Prince Andrew, former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson, former Senator George Mitchell, and Attorney Alan Dershowitz, among others. Note that each of these accused parties have denied these allegations, and there were counter-lawsuits filed against Gouffre by Epstein, Maxwell, and Dershowitz for defamation. Interestingly, in August of 2019, 2,000 pages of documents in Gouffre's case against Epstein and Maxwell were ordered released to the public. This was the disclosure that had lots of people associated with Epstein really, really nervous because what in the heck would be in there? Names, dates, places, victims. I mean, who knew? And some believe this is the disclosure that ultimately got Epstein killed, if you buy into that line of reasoning. Now, Epstein's little black book was already public, and that was a list of names and addresses, phone numbers, and emails of acquaintances That he had. And that was made public in 2012 after his housekeeper, Alfredo Rodriguez, was arrested by the FBI for trying to sell it for $50,000. And a second little black book has now just come out. But they are basically just contact lists. It's almost 2,000 names, but there aren't any particulars as to the nature of the relationship between the person listed and Epstein. So you can't just assume wrongdoing just because he had somebody listed in his contact list. And at the end of the day, the Gouffre documents did not contain a smoking gun either, They contained depositions and affidavits from lawsuits filed by Gouffre against Epstein and Maxwell in 2015, including Gouffre's 2016 deposition that we talked about earlier. There were also hundreds of pages of flight logs from Epstein's private jet, some of which that had been made public prior. These logs reflected passengers on the jet over the years to include Bill Gates, Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, Alan Dershowitz, the president of Columbia, and Naomi Campbell, just to name a few. To date, over 25 civil cases have been filed, some of which are still pending, none of which have ever gone all the way through trial, but all of which have either been settled or dismissed by the plaintiffs. Over half of those cases were filed after Epstein's death against his estate, including even the United States Virgin Islands, who filed suit against the estate in January of 2020, alleging that Epstein ran a ring for over two decades, involving children as young as 11. But let's head back over to the criminal side of things and talk about Epstein's second criminal case. On July 8th of 2019, Jeffrey Epstein was arrested by the FBI on trafficking charges for the second time. It was alleged that he was involved in between 2002 and 2005 involving underage girls as young as 14. It was alleged that he worked with others to facilitate an operation by contacting and recruiting victims and scheduling encounters in New York, Florida, and New Mexico. So in investigating the second case, the FBI served a search warrant on Epstein's Manhattan townhouse and discovered thousands of nude or partially nude photos of women, some of which were underage. And there was a safe in the home which contained several computer disks with more nudes. It had $70,000 in cash. 48 diamonds, and a fraudulent passport from Australia. Once in custody, Epstein was denied bond with the court, stating that he posed a danger to the public and was a flight risk. He was jailed at the Metropolitan Correctional Center in New York City, and this facility is somewhat popular for previously holding other high-profile inmates such as John Gotti, Paul Manafort, and el chapo epstein's defense maintained that his non-prosecution agreement from the first case protected him from crimes that predated the agreement so anything before 2007 which would include this second round of charges the government alleged that that was another state uh, that issued the immunity that was florida and that it didn't apply to new york even though they were both united states attorney's offices interesting arguments on both sides but the court never got to fully flesh out those issues because of what happened while Epstein was in custody. First, Epstein had been in custody for about two weeks when on July 23rd he was found injured and semi-unconscious in his cell at 1 a.m. He had marks around his neck that were suspected to be either from a attempt or an assault, but believed he was attacked by his cellmate, and his cellmate was former New York police officer Nicholas Tartaglioni, who was being held on charges of four murders. He denied assaulting Epstein. Regardless of the truth, the corrections staff deemed it a suicide attempt and placed Epstein on suicide watch in the psych unit. But this only lasted for six days, after which time he was placed on a step-down watch in a special housing unit where he was, number one, required to have a cellmate at all times, and number two, have guards check on him every 30 minutes. And each tier of this special housing unit has eight cells, and Epstein's cell was number 220. It was only about 15 feet away up a set of stairs from the guard station with a locked gate between them and there was no other way in or out of this particular housing unit now on august 9th of 2019 less than three weeks after the initial assault incident at 7 49 p.m prison video from the guard supervision area shows officer tova noel escorting epstein towards his cell and that was the last that anyone other than the cellmates on that unit would ever hear from Epstein because he was found dead in his cell the next morning at 6 30 a.m. And upon discovery of Epstein, instead of treating the area like a crime scene and photographing his body as they were supposed to, his body was moved and taken to the hospital by emergency responders. So no photos exist of the position of his body inside his cell. But that's just one of the many irregularities surrounding Epstein's death. The Department of Justice and the FBI conducted an investigation into the death, and what they discovered was very interesting. And remember, in this unit, Epstein was required to have a cellmate and to be checked on by the guards every 30 minutes. The investigation revealed that on August 9th of 2019, the day before his death, that Epstein's cellmate was transferred out. But no one was transferred in to take his place, so Epstein was alone. And the two guards who were supposed to check on him every 30 minutes, they did not do so. And the surveillance camera that showed the area in front of Epstein's cell, it mysteriously quit working on the evening in question. But you know what camera did work? It was the one about 15 feet away that recorded guards Michael Thomas and Tova Noël not checking on Epstein for over eight hours, but instead surfing the internet, playing on their phones, and sleeping. In May of 2021, those guards admitted that they falsified records regarding checking on Epstein and pled guilty to defrauding the United States. Interestingly, their punishment was only six months of probation and 100 hours of community service. Further oddities came through the autopsy that was performed on August 11th, it found that Epstein sustained three breaks to the bones of his neck. Specific attention was paid to the hyoid bone, which can break in a hanging situation, but is much more common victims of a homicidal strangulation. In fact, a study in 2016 of 264 hanging cases found that the hyoid bone was only broken in 6% of those cases. Barbara Sampson, the New York City medical examiner who performed the autopsy, ruled the death a suicide by hanging, with the Department of Justice concluding that Epstein had thrown himself violently off the cell's top bunk to hang himself. But many argue that the evidence just doesn't add up. Take, for instance, his cell. In the cell, there were multiple nooses made from bedsheets, One was tied to a window grate and another tied to the bottom of an upper bunk, but nothing up high. So a 6-foot, 185-pound Epstein would have had to basically hang himself by leaning somehow. Dr. Michael Bodden is an independent pathologist who was hired by Epstein's brother, he also attended the autopsy, and he stated, quote, Epstein experienced a number of injuries that are extremely unusual in suicidal hangings and occur more commonly in a homicidal strangulation. Dr. Bodden stated that he studied over 1,000 jail hangings over a 50-year period, and none, zero, had three neck bone fractures. Dr. Bodden also said that none of the sheets in Epstein's cell matched the wounds on his neck. And this takes us into the world of ligature marks, or marks that are left behind by material that has been used in a strangulation. Now, there is a whole realm of science behind that that is complicated, but for our purposes, a simple common sense understanding is enough. And that's this, that different materials will leave different patterns on the skin when they are used to strangle someone. It's common sense. For example, a thick rope will leave a different mark on my neck than, say, a thin electrical cord, which would be different than, say, if a chain were used or if, say, a bed sheet, like in this case. They all leave different marks on the skin. And a lot of times, there's also an indention or a furrow, as it is called, along the pressure point of the strangulation. And usually, this ligature furrow area will turn dark brown or dark red with pooling blood Postmortem. Okay. Dr. Bodden pointed out that in a hanging, the ligature mark is usually angled and above the Adam's apple beneath the jawbone due to the body being hung. In a homicidal strangulation, the ligature mark is usually straight across and down below the Adam's apple because the perpetrator often will use the victim's shoulders for leverage during the event. Dr. Baden also pointed out that in the case of a bedsheet, you would expect a wide furrow mark, not something thin like if you were strangled with a little electrical cord. Dr. Baden reported that Epstein's ligature mark was narrow, not wide like you would expect with a bed sheet, and straight across his neck at his Adam's apple, not angled or up near his jawline like you would expect in a... Further, Dr. Bodden stated that Epstein's furrow mark was red with blood on the surface, but there was no blood on any bedsheet recovered from the scene. Also interesting is that Epstein updated his last will and testament only two days before his death, but his lawyer said he was upbeat and looking forward to an appeal of his bond hearing. And there was a handwritten note, left in Epstein's cell. That recorded several things. The note stated that a guard had kept him locked in a shower stall for over an hour, that a guard gave him burnt food, that he had giant bugs crawling over his hands, and at the bottom of the note, he had two words written, no fun. Ultimately, United States Attorney General William Barr said he personally reviewed the video of the guard station from the night in question and that no one entered or exited the unit that evening. He called the death a suicide. and if you believe his statement, it accounts for everyone except for the inmates that were already in the unit and for which the unit's camera was not working. Now, Dr. Bodden stated, I think the physical evidence points more to a homicide rather than a suicide. And Epstein's lawyers have also said the evidence is more consistent with murder than suicide. So in the end, what do you think happened to Epstein? Well, that's for you to decide. Put your theories, put your comments in the section below. As for Ghislaine Maxwell, well, after she ended her public association with Epstein in 2008, she basically just disappeared. There is a famous photograph of her at an In-N-Out burger in California where she appears to just be casually going about life. But many believe it was actually faked by her lawyers to throw the authorities off of her actual whereabouts hidden away in Paris, France. Ghislaine Maxwell was formally charged in July of 2020 for perjury and trafficking. The alleged trafficking occurred between 1994 and 1997, and the perjury occurred in 2016 when she lied under oath in a deposition about her participation in the aforesaid trafficking. If you follow, she has contended that the non-prosecution agreement entered into by Epstein in 2007 protects her as one of the unnamed co-conspirators from prosecution for trafficking in her case. Now, it won't help with the perjury charge, but that's the least of her worries at this point. She is currently being held in Brooklyn's Metro detention facility and has been denied bond three times now. Her case is scheduled for trial late in 2021, and she is facing up to 80 years in prison. At the end of the day, as of 2021, Epstein's estate was reportedly worth about $240 million. He has paid over $50 million to victims of his abuse. Epstein is buried in an unmarked grave in Palm Beach, Florida, and the tombstone is unmarked to prevent vandalism. So that's the episode. I hope you have enjoyed it. If you have, hit that like button for me. If you've got a comment, a question, you have a theory on Epstein's death, put it in the comment sections below. If you haven't subscribed, do it. Subscribe to the channel. And last but not least, I love it when you guys share me on social media. I want to thank you for watching today. Again, my name is Joshua Roberts, attorney at law, and you've been watching Lawyer up. Send lawyers, guns, and money.